this podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 167 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. Hey, I'm Teresa. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so this is uh we're actually at the time this comes out, we will be traveling back from Philadelphia. Yes. So what we've done in the past, and we mentioned to this last week, is we're going to do a Patreon episode. The one we're going to play for you tonight came from December, and it's on a pretty well-known story that's within the last five years in New Jersey called The Watcher. Mm. It's very creepy. It's a fairly long story. I think it was about 55 minutes long. But as usual, we're not just going to give you that one in case you've already heard it. So we're going to give you something new also to put okay, with it. Okay, great. First of all, I want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you guys and gals and dogs. Yeah. For everything you do. Bless you guys so much. Keep safe, please. Uh, same thing this week. There won't be any Patreons or um, iTunes shout outs. We'll catch up with all those next week. And as far as um, just trying to let people know, we care about you. Just if nothing else, we love you. Absolutely love you guys. And if you're in need of some help, if you need to talk to somebody, reach out to somebody. Reach out to us. Reach out to the group. They're there for you, for your support. Reach out to uh, the Suicide Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Or if you're more of a texter, 741-741. Just remember, no matter what, you're not alone, even though it feels like it sometimes. Not ever. Okay, Tracy. What, Jerry? (laughs) (laughs) So we always talk about the fact that we love the Smoky Mountain. Love, uh... Love is not a big enough word. So we just went like three weeks ago, two weeks ago. We went over Labor Day weekend. Yes. And you're already said something today about you're ready to go back. I am because they have all their fall stuff out and it's the beautiful time of the year there. It is. So, yeah, I, I absolutely love the place. I know we've talked about actually moving down there more times than we can count. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful. So there's a pretty famous haunted site down in that area. And I thought we would cover it tonight. There's not a ton of information on it but it works out perfect for being a short story like this so let's talk about wheatland plantation in severeville do you remember we had uh chad lindberg on yes and he was uh jesse from from uh, fast and furious but he was also a paranormal investigator and he was mm-hmm. on the show with john el tenney called ghost stalkers yeah this is one of the places they checked out down there so not a whole lot of people I've seen go there, but they went there. That's one thing I liked about them. They went to a lot of cool places, especially in the South, because they went there and they went to the East Pittsburgh State Hospital mm-hmm. and all that. So anyways, this is one of Tennessee's oldest and its oldest uh, buildings, and it sits on Boyd's Creek Road. 
it's an 1820 federal style home to get and get this okay it was constructed around a large geode that's in the basement get out of here pretty cool that's very nice it's a three-story brick house and there's a very good reason why this place is haunted and this is something i really want to dig into more information because i couldn't find a ton on it how about 70 deaths in this house Wait, in one house, 70? That's what it says. Oh. Saw that on several different areas, but didn't get really much details on where all of them came from. Now, some of these were murder. We know that. But that's not all. There were 28 Cherokee that were killed here during the Battle of Boyd's Creek. Boyd's Creek runs right alongside this property. Mm -hmm. So, subsequently, all of these 28 Cherokee were buried in a mass grave right behind the home. Oh, wow. Next to that grave are the graves of two Revolutionary War soldiers and 69 slaves. Aww. So you, you got 70 people who died in the house. That's heartbreaking. You've got 69 slaves, two soldiers, and 28 Cherokee built, mm. built, uh, buried right behind it. Not to mention the Cherokee were slaughtered on that property. <sighs> so one of the stories I got is about Tim and John Chandler. As we've talked about back in the 1800s, a lot of people had the same name, so they're not to be confused with the original owners that were Tim and John Chandler. These mm-hmm. are descendants. But Tim and John Chandler. So Tim was John's father, okay? Okay. Tim's mom owned the house, and when she died, she left it to John, her grandson, not her son Tim. Mm. Her reasons was because Tim was an alcoholic. Oh, Tim was not happy about this, as you could imagine, and it obviously sparked some jealousy. Eventually, temper boiled over, and him and Tim got into this big fight. Uh, I mean, Tim and John, his son, got into this big fight. And in self-defense, John killed his father with a poker from the fireplace. Oh! He stabbed him just below the ribs. Oh, geez. That smarted. They say that you can still see the blood stains in the parlor. It's apparently wooden floor. And there have been several different attempts over the years by several different people to get the stains out of the floor, but it always comes back. They've even sanded the boards. And it still comes and back. And it still comes back. Well, I mean, he can't be an alcoholic and act like he can take care of stuff. Yeah. You know? Some people can. They're functioning alcoholics. Well, that's very true. That's very true, but I don't think it needed to go that far. Wheatland's got its name, by the way, by its humongous wheat crops that it would produce on a yearly basis. The farm has been around since 1790s, and that's when Tim Chandler, the original Tim Chandler, uh, he was a Revolutionary War veteran. He started the, started the farm, and his son, John, then he took over and inherited it in 1819. Mm-hmm. So, been in the family at that time for, yeah, for a, long, a long time. Yeah, a long time. So they, he turned it into a huge success. It was one of the biggest farms in Sevierville by 1850. In 1875, Chandler freed all of his slaves, and he gave them all some of the farm. So he freed them, and he gave them parts of the farm. So good, good. He also founded the Chandler Gap community in the hills just south of the, popu- uh, the uh, city right there. So it's important to note that the home that's there now that we're, we're talking about isn't the original structure that was there. There was one right before that. It burned to the ground in 1825, mm-hmm. which is when the new one was built. 
And unfortunately, four children lost their lives in the home when it burnt down. So the current home is supposedly haunted by spirits, including the Chandler family, several Native Americans, as you can imagine. That's uh, People claim that they can hear chants and singing all the time that would be uh, more akin to Native Americans. So wait, did... Uh, did John then go? To, he didn't go to jail or anything for killing his dad. It doesn't say. I didn't see any of that information. Oh, sorry. Hmm. Huh. You also hear the sound of children um, running around and laughing and playing there. Yeah. Well, at least they're laughing. That's a good thing. See, it wasn't a huge story, but it was a no. But a he did story. something so good though with it. Hmm. Wow. So I don't know. Like the the Native Americans, I know why they were there. And he was a revolutionary war veteran, so he might have been one of the ones buried in the backyard. Yeah. Thank you for I your have, service, sir. <laughs> that only works that first time. What I mean, I'm being serious. <laughs> so then the, 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 <laughs> damn, Ninja, the slaves that were buried back there, I mean, I'm assuming they were all slaves of his at one time. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know if any of those people, the any of the slaves, were the ones who died in the house. Hmm. I mean, I know Chandler died in the house because he was stabbed. Well, I'm sure somebody probably did. You know, yeah. them damn fires get you. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if the four children who died in that house, if they were, the, if they were even included in that number. Yeah. Well, that's. A, I mean, it's like a happy and a sad story all at once. You know. Yeah. So anyway, that was the little news story I wanted to give you. But um, now I want you guys to listen to this next one, which is a phenomenal story. Absolutely love it. The Watcher. Hey, guys. Welcome to the December bonus episode. Dun, dun, dun. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) We're giddy. We're giddy. But this is going to be a fairly serious episode, so... This is one of those that, like, even though we're giddy, by the time we get into the story, I think it'll slap both of us back into kind of reality. Oh, yeah, definitely. This is a very cool story, and this is a very recent story. This is uh, goes back to 2014, when it originally started, but this is kind of still going on today. And a lot of the article I got was from a, um, I don't know if it's a magazine or mm-hmm. a online magazine, but it's called The Cut. And... That's where I got a lot of the information that we're going to be talking about tonight. And that story just came out in November. So it's less than a month old. Yeah, that is. Look at you getting something recent. I know, but it's pretty good. And I I stumbled across it and I thought, man, this would make a good story. So there we go. We're going to do it. How about that? All righty. So obviously when you buy your dream home, Everything should be really cool after that. It should be nothing but, you know, just planning on moving in and picking out the rooms and, you know, which kids get this room and what you want to do with the kitchen and your decorations. That should be all you would be thinking about, right? Yeah. And I'm assuming that you would probably think if you got your dream home, you would actually probably move into it. Yes. Not always the case, apparently. So we're going to talk about Derek and Maria Broadus. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It could be Broadus, but I think it's Broadus. So we're going to say Broadus. We're going to go back to June of 2014. This is in Westfield, New Jersey. It's a little small town. Many people say it's like Mayberry. Mm-hmm. It's like 30,000 people in the entire town. Very low crime. 
everything's pretty much perfect about this place. So you got a couple, Derek and Maria. They close on this house. It's it's a six bedroom house. It's at six fifty seven Boulevard. That's gonna come into play the address a lot in this story as you're gonna say. So you got Derek's at the house. Marie and them are at their old house. They haven't moved yet. And Derek's in there. They're doing some renovations before they move in. And it's about three days after they closed on the house. So Derek gets through. He's got some stuff going on, some construction equipment. He's working in the house, doing a little bit of painting and stuff. And he decides to check the mail. It's the end of the night. He's going to go out there and check the mail. He said there was just, you know, a, a couple of bills or something like that. Some some stuff that didn't belong to them because they just yeah. moved in. People got the wrong address. But there was this white card-shaped envelope. So just like you would get mm-hmm. uh, if somebody sent you an invitation or something. It was addressed in thick handwriting to the new owner. So then you think, oh, that's pretty cool. Nice, nice mail. But here's what it said. Dearest new owner at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. Well, that sounds comforting enough. You know, not, well, yes. no, no major deals there. Well, here's where the problem comes into. So you got to realize at this point, we're going to get into more of that letter. But buying this house at 657 Boulevard was a dream come true. Maria was wait, raised it in Westfield. And she just, you know, was a couple blocks away from where her childhood home was. Yeah, she knew the area and everything. Derek grew up in in Maine, so he was a little bit away. But what had happened is he he got into an insurance company while he was young, because he's only like 40 years old at this point. Mm -hmm. He got into there and and he started working his way from the big, you know, low end all the way up to the ladder. And he became vice president and he had a salary that was large enough where they could buy this $1.3 million home. Oh, dang. Good for him. So they bought the house, and uh, they went ahead and, and started getting ready to move their kids in. They had three kids at the time, and they were, you know, kids were already, like I said, picking out rooms and trying oh, to yeah, trying to decide, you know, which fireplace Santa was going to come out of and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. So Derek, let's go back and he starts reading this letter a little bit further. And it says stuff like, how did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? The letter said that? The letter said that. Here's what it says. It says, 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, no. And so you could imagine how that might affect somebody right off the bat. And to show this wouldn't BS, in the letter, he identified the, the Brodus's Honda minivan. He also uh, uh, mentioned that the workers that were renovating the home, he said, I see that you have already flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. And then he wrote, tisk tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. How about that? I mean, what was he like? Like at, on the other side of the street watching? Or, I mean, how does he know all this well, that's, stuff? Well, that's what we're going to try to get into. So Derek and Maria, 
had went to the house uh, earlier in the week, and they started kind of chatting to their new neighbors, just kind of find out what what was going on. They had three kids, like I said, they were five, eight, and ten years old, and they ran around the backyard with a bunch of you know the other kids from the neighborhood and stuff. Whatever they were doing, the letter writer noticed because he said, "You have children. I've seen them. So far, I think there are three that I've counted." Then he asked in a letter if there were more on the way. He said, do you need to fill the house with young blood, I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family, or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Holy shnikey. (laughs) What the hell? Of course, on the envelope, there was no return address at all. And he says, he or she says, who am I? So there are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I'm in one. Why did you say that again? I didn't because that's what he said. Oh. (laughs) Well, did he tell his wife about the letter? Well, I'm sure he will. Well, we'll get into more of that. Oh. He said... Look out any of the many windows at 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. And then he put this little, um, suggested that that, uh, this wouldn't be the last message that he sent. He said, welcome, my friends, welcome. Let the party begin. And then he typed uh, a signature in cursive font that said the watcher. Oh, hell no. Mm Mm-mm. Yeah, I'd be already done with that place. So at this point, it was already after like 10 o'clock and Derek was all alone. So he kind of just went all around the house and he was turning off lights and everything so nobody could see inside. And he called the police department. The police department showed up and, and they, they look at the letter and they're like, they're like, what the F is this? And they asked, you know, Derek, did he have any enemies or anything like that? And they said there was a piece of construction equipment back there by his porch, and they suggested that he move that because it was small enough where they could toss it through a window. Mm. So just trying to, you know. So Derek went back to his wife and kids who were, like I said, they were living in their old home. And that night, Derek and Maria wrote an email to John and Andrea Woods. Now, John and Andrea Woods were the people who owned 657 Boulevard that sold it to them. Mm-hmm. And they asked if they had any idea who this watcher might be that that wrote this letter or why they even wrote the letter. And so they said, because in the, keep in mind in the letter, he said, I asked the woods to bring me young blood and it looks like they listened. Oh, so that was part of the letter. And the woods were the people who sold them the house. And then the fact that it said, you know, was was the old house too small for a growing family or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I'll draw them to me as well. Hmm. So the next day, Andrea Woods, the the lady who had previously owned the house, she responded. She said a few days before moving out, they did receive a letter from the watcher. The note was odd, she said. And she said it made similar mention of the watcher's family observing the house over, you know, all these different years and stuff like that. But she said her and her husband had, had never received anything like that. And they had lived there for 23 years in that house. So they just basically threw it away without even thinking about it. So that day, the Woods went uh, over to Maria to the police station, and uh, there was a detective by the name of Leonard Lugo. He told them, don't say anything about these letters to any of the neighbors or anything. We need to keep this quiet because, you know, all of your neighbors pretty much could be suspects. 
at this point. Oh, in time. yeah. So I the is yeah, the Broadduses, they were on high alert. I mean, they literally were like panic mode all the time. I mean, Derek canceled a, a work trip that he had because he didn't want to leave them alone. And when Maria took the kids to the new house to get anything done, you know, accomplish anything, they still hadn't moved in. She would yell their names, and you know, if they got too far away, and so did so. Then she knew about the letter. I mean, she knew. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. He, he, he told her about the he told her about the letter and everything mm-hmm. when he got home. So then, like um, at one point in time, Derek had gave some people, I guess, some uh, neighbors and stuff. They gave him like a little tour of the house, showed them what kind of work they were doing on it and all that, and. One of the neighbors, I guess, they're looking, said it'd be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. <gasps> so obviously, his ears perked up. Yeah, they, like, perked, hey. they perked up. And then they had uh, one of the contractors showed up one morning, and he had put a big sign in the yard. I guess I don't know if it said you know so and so construction or whatever yeah. advertising, but it had been ripped out overnight. So then two weeks later, this is after the the letter came. Two weeks later. Maria, she stopped by the house, and, and she was basically just doing some painting and stuff like that, looking at some stuff, and she checked the mail. She recognized there was a card. It had the same black, thick lettering on it. So she called the police. It says, welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy, and I've been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Had they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. In this letter, though, the person that was calling himself the Watcher, he actually listed Derek and Maria's name in the letter, but he misspelled their last names because he said Mr. and Mrs. Braddus, B-R-A-D-D-U-S. Mm-hmm. He apparently was close enough to hear what was going on, uh, either the contractors either calling them by name or something because now he knew their name. He also was bragging about having learned a lot about the family in the preceding weeks, especially about their children. The letter identified the Brodus's three kids by birth order and their nicknames. Good grief. These were the same names that Maria had been yelling, like when they got too far away in the yard and everything. He said, I'm pleased to know your, your names now and the name of your, your young blood you have brought to me. You certainly say their names often. The letter asked about one child in particular, and he said, uh, it, "He said I, I noticed that they were using an easel on an enclosed porch. Porch, is she the artist in the family?" Oh my gosh, I would be so freaking out. <laughs> so then it went on to say, "657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It's been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of that house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement?" Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move towards the house. Who am I? I'm the Watcher, and I've been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades. The Woods family turned it over to you 
and it was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, the Braddis family. Even though he spelled it wrong. <laughs> Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought you the brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. Why do they say greed? Because... I don't know. I guess because of the fact it's a... Uh, well, we'll get into a little bit later why maybe some of that be, but it's really got to do with the fact that this is a very prestigious neighborhood. Oh. And, and the houses are all uh, super expensive and mm-hmm. overpriced for the area and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So so then what happened is Derek and Maria, they, they just quit bringing the kids to the house. And um, now they started wondering about when they were going to move in, if they were going to move in. And several weeks later, letter number three came. It said, where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard is missing you. So now you start getting, or gotten, you start mm-hmm. getting all the residents in the area are starting to kind of freak out a little bit because, but actually, I'm not, that's really not the case because well, at this point in time, nobody really knew. Well, I was going to say, how, how are they freaking out? Did they tell everybody? Well, that's what I'm saying. Nobody really knew yet, but I mean, in their head, they were freaking out. Not yeah. not the neighbors. Is, is, um, I basically meant that the uh, the Broadduses were freaking out. So, like I said, keep in mind this is like a, a perfect little neighborhood. Not a whole lot of going on. Yeah, but I mean, does did they just call the police, or did the police actually come there? I wonder. No, they called the police. Okay, so I was going to say maybe the neighbors are like, "Why are the police over here?" Or something. Well, the neighbors are like the only pressing issues they had going on was. You know, they said they had a um, a temporary closure of Trader Joe's after a roof collapse. And then some of the cops were aggressive in their parking reinforcement. Oh. Also, Westfield is 86% white. Uh-huh. So there's uh, a lot of um, people that feel that they're better than others, you would probably Yeah, think. I, I got gotcha. you. This will probably answer some of your stuff. Like One of the things that was that locals would say was like a really treacherous thing to do was to buy a house. <laughs> you wouldn't think that would be the case, but there's a lot of money and a lot of ego. And uh, one resident who said she didn't want to be known, she said that was talking about real estate agent had told her that she's seen bidding wars uh, where friends lost by $300,000 on some of these houses. The Broaddus's house was on Boulevard, which is like a, a big, wide tree line street and some of the more desirable homes in the town were all on that street so the watcher kind of said that because he said the boulevard used to be the street to live on you made it if you lived on the boulevard mm-hmm. so and his house was built in 1905 um and it was like at one point in time the nicest house on the block so when the woods put it on the market they had received a bunch of offers that were way above the asking price and that led the Broadduses to initially suspect that the watcher might be one of these people who lost a bid on the house. So maybe they wanted the house, but they got outbid, mm-hmm. and now they were just sour grapes because they didn't get the house. But what we found out was when you, you look into it a little bit, there were a couple other offers, but one of them had to back out because they got a bad medical diagnosis, so they decided not to pursue that. Yeah. And then... Um, you know, there was another one that just, you know, 
they just already found a different home, so they, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't need it anymore, and then that left the Broadduses. So that really kind of defeats, or, or, or kind of shoots that whole theory in the head that maybe it was somebody to get out big yeah. because mm-hmm. it really, really wasn't the case. And the fact that they mentioned the contractor trucks and the children suggests that it was probably somebody in the neighborhood, because how else would you know? Right. Unless you're by there all the time. The letters did kind of indicate proximity because they had been processed in a place called Kearney, which is a city. It's a, um, a U.S. Postal Service distribution center in northern New Jersey. So we know mm-hmm. that it was sent close to there. It wouldn't have went through that post office. Yeah. It would have went through somewhere else first. The funny thing is the very first letter was postmarked June 4th, and that was before the sale was even public. So nobody even knew that they had bought the house yet. As a matter of fact, the Woods didn't have never even put up a for sale sign. Well, that's kind of weird. Yep. And the letter came the next day after the construction started. So how would it have made it to the post office? And they there, the so very next day. Somebody probably drove it and put it in the mailbox. But it was postmarked, so it couldn't be the case. Oh. So anyway, the renovations they were they were mainly on the inside. So people who lived lived nearby wouldn't even have known that they were doing renovations on the place just by going by. Mm-hmm. So it just makes it even more weird. And the easel that was on the porch was pretty much hidden from everybody except for one house on the side of them. You would have had to have been in the backyard, literally. Yeah, to see that. Because there was a bunch of trees and stuff that blocked it from the houses behind. So a couple of days after they got the, the first letter, Marie and Derek were, they were invited to like a barbecue. There was them and somebody else who had moved in. Mm-hmm. They had like a, a big barbecue. A bunch of the neighbors all got together, like a welcoming type thing. So they're over there. Of course, they're keeping an eye on all the kids because everybody at this barbecue pretty much was a suspect. Yeah. Because they were all their neighbors. So they're constantly just kind of looking around, seeing, you know, what's going on and uh, screaming for the kids to stay as close as they could and all that stuff. People must have probably thought they were crazy just by the way they were acting because nobody... protective, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, because nobody knew about the letters at this yeah. point. So Derek starts talking to this, this one neighbor named Jonathan Schmidt, and he lived two doors down. Now, in between John uh, John Schmidt and um, the Brontuses, there was a, a family called the Langfords, okay? And... Peggy Langford was in her 90s. She was like the mom. But then all of her grown kids lived with her, like some of them like 60 years old. No, that's creepy. One of the younger ones was Michael Langford, and he didn't work. And they said he kind of was like Boo Radley, which was the character in To Kill a Mockingbird. It's kind of an odd duck, Mm -hmm. to say the least. So when he started thinking about it, Derek thought, this pretty much answers the question right there because the, the Langford house was right next door to, so they would have been able to see the easel, the only house that could have seen it from their side. The family had lived there since the 60s. Remember the, the watcher's father, or at least the letter, said the father had begun watching uh, the, the house in the 60s mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. So they start putting all this stuff together, and then they started figuring, they looked at it, Richard Langford, who was the, the dad there, he died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher said that he'd been on a job for almost two decades. And So they start thinking, this is open and shut. This It's this guy. Yeah. So when the Broadus has told the, uh, Detective Lugo about this family, he said he already knew. And a week after the first letter arrived, he brought Michael, Michael Lanford into the police headquarters for an interview. He'd already interviewed Michael Lanford about this 
Oh, and that they, they even, didn't even know it? Yeah, before they even brought it to him. And Michael denied knowing anything about it. And this is my favorite part about this, but the Broadus has told Lugo about, you know, what was said and how everything kind of matched up to him in the letters. And uh, the detective said, this isn't CSI Westfield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when the wife is dead, it's the husband or whatever the case is. That's just not, it doesn't work that simple all the time. So there really wasn't much hard evidence. And, and after a few weeks, the police chief told the Broadus that short of, Somebody just admitting to it, there pretty much really wasn't anything else they could do about it. Yeah. Which you could understand. Right. But, you know, like they said, if somebody threatened your kids, you know. There should be. You've got to be cautious about that, especially in today's uh, age. You know, probably nothing's going to happen, but are you willing to take that chance? Yeah. So. Not me. I'd be watching my kids like a hawk, too. So the Broadduses decided they were going to start their own investigation. So Derek became, like, obsessed. Mm Mm-hmm. We're trying to do this. He set up webcams uh, at the house, and he spent nights crouched in the backyard in the dark, and he's watching to see if anybody was watching the house at close range. Maria thought he was crazy. She said, she's like, you know, my God. <laughs> he told her at, a, at a, a recent coffee shop that he covered a table with documents relating to the case, <laughs> just like he was a detective. And uh, But they, they'd only shared it with close friends, and they didn't share it with any of the neighbors, and... He even pulled out a map showing where everybody lives, and they went back and forth and who was in an approximate range. I mean, he he took this stuff serious. It was just like something you would see on TV because he's figuring if she's yelling at the kids, there's only a few houses Mm -hmm. around there that would have been able to hear that to be able to pinpoint. So, I mean, that's how serious he took this. They didn't do all the work themselves, though. They also turned to a couple of experts. They hired a private investigators. He kind of staked out the whole neighborhood and was doing background checks on the Langfords, but he couldn't find anything. He reached out to a former FBI agent who was the inspiration for Clarice Stalling. Uh, uh, Starling, I'm sorry. I don't know why I said Stalling. From Silence of the Lambs. Oh. So he apparently had worked with this guy. So he knew who he was. So mm-hmm. he reached out to him. And uh, I guess they were on a high school board of trustees or something together. So anyway, they also hired Robert Linehan. He was another FBI agent. And he would do like threat assessment. So they were going through all this stuff. Linehan kind of recognized a bunch of old-fashioned ticks in the letters. So by that, he was able to say that, um, like, for example, it was like Mr. and Mrs. Braddis, but it was like M slash M. Yeah. So it's like that's something usually only older people would do. Yeah. He mentioned the weather, like it was warm and humid or sunny and cool for a summer day, and the sentences had double spaces, and that would tend to lead that it was somebody older. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. That, yeah. The True Life CSS stuff. And he also thought that there's a movie that Keanu Reeves was in called The Watcher. And it was about a serial killer who stalked detectives trying to catch him. And he thought maybe he might have got some inspiration from that movie. And that's why he called himself The Watcher. So Linehan didn't think The Watcher was likely to act on the threats. He just thought, you know, I know it sounds bad, but it sounds like somebody's just kind of messing with you. A bunch of typos and stuff like that. Like one, one letter said it was Tuesday, June 4th, but... The, the fourth was actually a Wednesday, just little things like that. And he kind of felt like that this was somebody who had a problem with people that had money. Uh, like, for example, he said, are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? And, and you know, the, by the Broadus is actually doing their restoration stuff. He said the house is crying from all the pain it is going through. 
You have changed it and made it so fancy. You're still in its history. It cries for the past. Hmm. This guy just sounds like a, so much fun. He said, what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls, the 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard, when I ran from room to room, imagining life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. When it got old, and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died, and now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. It's freaky. Mm-hmm. So anyways, Linehan, he kind of recommended that maybe they look into some former housekeepers or maybe some of the housekeepers' kids or the grandkids and thought maybe might have something to do with it. Maybe that, you know, it was they were pissed off that they couldn't afford the home, you know. Right. When it came time to buy it, they, you know, worked there, maybe All lived there, years, but they yeah. couldn't afford to buy the home. The main focus, though, stayed on the Langfords. And... uh they cooperated with Westfield Police, and the Broadus has sent a letter to the Langfords announcing plans to tear down the house. This was to the police suggestion because they wanted to see if they sent them a letter saying, hey, we're going to tear down the house, would it get a response? And it didn't. Got them nowhere. Matter of fact, um, Michael Langford's sister, Abby, accused the police of harassing her family, and eventually uh, the Broadus has hired Lee Levitt, who's an attorney, and he met with several members of the Langford family, and you know, showed photos and stuff like that, but nothing really came out of it. As much as they kept trying to hang this on that Langford family, they never could find anything mm-hmm. convinced that they were doing anything outside of what they should have been, just being neighbors. So now the problem is that almost anybody could be the watcher, so they basically lived their life looking at everybody as a suspect, Googling anybody that they thought was suspicious you know, they could be in, like, Trader Joe's or something. If they saw somebody that looked like they might have been staring at the Ken's funny, it was like, you know, is this them? Now, keep in mind, they still have not moved into the house. Hmm. They go to these functions and they show up but for the the barbecues and all that stuff. They still have not moved in. They're, at this whole time, they're still doing, like, renovations and stuff. But the, the neighbors know they still don't live there? Yeah, the neighbors know. Okay. There was reasons to consider other suspects police spoke to Michael Lanford before the second letter was even sent, which, you know, made it pretty reckless for two more letters to come. So the chances of it being him, he would really have to be stupid. And there was a private investigator who found two sex offenders that lived within a couple of blocks. Bill Woodward, who was the uh, Woodward, who was their house painter, said that he noticed something strange. There was a couple right behind 60, 657 Boulevard that kept a pair of lawn chairs really close to their property. Like, instead of it being up by their house, it was, like, all the way at the end. Back to the fence or something. Yeah. And they said that one day he looked out the window, and this this guy was sitting on one of the chairs, but it wasn't facing his house. It was facing the Broadus' house. Okay, that's uh, annoying. So by the end of 2014, the investigation had pretty much stalled, and that was it for right then. I mean, it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. There was no kind of fingerprints. There was nothing to go by. It was typed letters, so they couldn't even really go by. Mm-hmm. It's just everything just was there. And and nothing that could lead police to anything. Now, as far as the renovations that he was doing, he put in a new alarm system, and they were finished a few months later. The idea of moving in was thought about, but it was very, um, they felt very anxious about doing that. I mean, could they let their kids play out? or have friends over you know would they get a new letter every week 
So Derek decided he wanted to get some prices on getting some German shepherds, and uh, he even posted a job on a on a website for military veterans. Said all you got to do is come work out in the backyard every day. He just wanted somebody there. So they thought we didn't buy this house to feel like that we're going to be locked up in a fortress. Yeah, you know, that's that wasn't part of, of of our dream home, you know. But they're not going to put their kids in in harm's way. So Derek had been. Um, having some alarms go off at the house he'd occasionally come out there and check it out because they lived still fairly close by now what happened though is he gets the third letter apparently the watcher was getting a little pissed off at you know what he was seeing or not seeing he said 657 boulevard is turning on me it's coming after me i don't understand why what spell you did to cast on it it used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I'm in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to come, become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. Mm. They even brought in a priest mm-hmm. to bless the house. I don't know what they thought that was going to do. So the Broadduses had already sold their home. They had a little bit of time to still live there. And so now it's gone, they don't have anywhere to stay. So they either move in the house or, or find something else. So what they did was they moved in with Maria's parents and they kept paying the property taxes and the mortgage and, and everything here at 657 Boulevard but they had moved in he had to go over and do stuff like shovel the driveway when it would snow and all that stuff but that's pretty much all he was doing there and he said it kind of sucked so he would you know go over at 5 o'clock in the morning and shovel the driveway then have to come home and do it at his mother-in-law's house too Yeah. so that's just lazy just do it but he said they've started fighting all the time uh, they'd only told a few people about the letters, but it was starting to be so stressful that uh, Maria started seeing a therapist because she went to go see a doctor. He asked how she was doing. She just broke into tears yeah. just on the simple question. And, you know, they they were like, we got to get rid of this house. It's just we're, we're never going to be happy there. We need to get rid of it. So six months after the letters arrived, the, the Broadduses decided to sell. They initially listed for more than they paid to kind of, yeah. since they did all these renovations and stuff to it. But sub- suburban area there mm-hmm. was really gossipy, and everybody by now knew about the letters. Oh. And they were starting to, um, you know, like, for example, one broker emailed and said, hey, love the house, but there are so many ups to, up, uh, substantiated rumors flying around, ranging from sexual prayer to stalker, that they needed to know more. So the Broadduses basically said... To their offense, hey, if somebody's serious about the house and they make us an offer that we accept, mm-hmm. before we make them purchase, we will show them the whole letters. They yeah. can see every bit of it and let them make a decision. Now, eventually, their realtor's like, you know, you probably don't need to do that. You're yeah, I would off. think that would be not a good thing to do. Yeah, you know, you don't, need to, you don't need to come forward about that because it's just, you know, let's be honest. She said, I, you know, she had a dog. Or a neighbor that had a, a, you know, a dog that was 
trying to bite people or something and they didn't come out and say anything about that yeah you know there's no sense in doing any of that anyways so this brings up the next little twist in it so Derek and maria thought well i mean if the woods had told us about the letter they received I don't know that we would have bought the house, or you well, know, we, we we might have, but it would have been at least nice to know. So that's why we want to give full disclosure to anybody that may be looking to buy our house. And what that's going to eventually end up doing is, after trying to sell the house and not having any luck with it, or people giving them such lowball yeah. prices that they couldn't afford to take a hit on it. They felt that it was worth um, mentioning to any new family that might be moving in. So, a year after buying 657 Boulevard, they filed a legal complaint against the Woods, saying that the Woods should have disclosed a letter that they had the fact that the water, you know, just like they did the fact that the water sometimes gets in the basement. So, they disclosed that the water gets in the basement, but they didn't disclose they got a letter saying they, the house was being watched. And so they filed a lawsuit. At this time, they said that their kids at the house still didn't know anything about any of these letters. Wow. So Derek and Maria knew, but the kids didn't know. Here's the problem. What happens when you file a lawsuit? Now it's public knowledge. Right. And their attorney said, you know, when you file this, there might be a news wire that picks up the story. It's probably all over Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as it was a few weeks later, they put this out a few weeks later, it's on the Today Show. <laughs> no kidding. Right. So remember they, they said, uh, we do some creepy stories. This was, this was uh, Tamron Hall said on the Today Show. She said, this might be top 10 creepy. A local reporter had actually found the complaint and it had snippets of some of the letters in it. And it, then it hit big time. So now everybody knew about the letters. So this starts getting into some, a bunch of he said, she said stuff. So now they filed this lawsuit. They're not living there. Now they're starting to feel funny because everybody knows who they are. They're on the news. They're on everything. News trucks are showing up all through the neighborhood. They decide to move to a friend's beach house for a little bit. Get Let's just get away from everything. Well, Maria's grandfather had a heart attack, and the friend they were staying with had a grandma seizure, so they end up right back anyway. They needed to come back because of the her, the her father or grandfather rather having a heart attack. So eventually, they sat down with their children and they explained the real reason why they had never moved into their house in a year. Oh, they did. They told the kids. Yeah, and the kids, of course, they've got all the questions. Who's angry with us? You know, why can't we move in? And they's like, how do you explain this to a five-year-old? To make them understand. You know, he said, how do you tell them that your town is not as safe as you think it is and there's a boogeyman that's obsessed with you? Because that's basically what it was. So then you got people that, from, you know, a distance that now see this, they're trying to solve this stuff. You got people looking at Google Maps and saying, oh, there was a car in the driveway and it looks like Mm -hmm. some, you know, all these wannabes out there. And it just kept getting more and more and more um, publicized, and everybody had a, a, a thought. It's it's a jilted lover. It's a, a a realtor who didn't get a commission. It's a you know it's a high school kid. This is their creative, you know, uh, writing project or something like that. And, 
what they say they're just people having fun it's a prank there was everybody had something to do with it and then people were you know saying hey i would never let a you know a sicko stop me from moving into my house never back down from a terrorist and and they're like yeah you can't just decide whether a person's nuts enough to write a letter and not do something. What if mm-hmm. something does happen? Yeah. Yeah, you you can't do that. Oh, especially when they knew the kids' names and right. everything that was going on at the house. So now the people in the neighborhood were on edge because this was their quaint little town that nothing ever happens in. You know, you got Lori Clancy who teaches piano lessons in, in the house right behind 657 Boulevard. She told one of her said one of her students came to the lesson shortly after this story broke and just started bawling, saying she was terrified to even walk down the boulevard and stuff like that, which these probably little rich kids and stuff that never had to worry about anything. So mm-hmm. I can imagine this might be a, a major deal. But you know, police had completely given up on this and um Even after all the news thing and everything? Yeah, but what happens was now that the news kinda got pushed in there and people started getting a little more um, antsy about it. They start the 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 mayor of the town's like you know hey, we probably maybe should have done a little bit more. Right. I mean, I'm sure those people we were demanding that somebody look into this. I mean, I would be scared. So what they did was they they got a gentleman by the name of Baron Chamless. He was a veteran detective in the West Westfield uh, Police Department. They asked him to reopen the case and look into it. He said, the Broadduses are victims, and I don't think that they got the support they needed. So he jumps in and starts looking at stuff, and he looks, takes another look at this Michael Langford guy. And according to his brother, Sandy Langford, Michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a, as a very young man, and he always kind of spooked people in the neighborhood because he would, like, look through people's doors and stuff like that. But it, he he didn't mean anything by it, and, mm-hmm. you know, trample through the backyards or something like that, and you know. But he probably didn't have the capability of writing the letters, especially the way that they were written. Mm. So that kind of knocked him out. And he was just unusual, but he was just super kind. And like one guy said, remember the guy John Schmidt that we brought up earlier that said that you know that guy was kind of weird. He said that, like, this guy would go out and get his paper and bring it to him every morning and stuff like that. So he just, overall, was just a super nice guy probably not capable of writing yeah. those letters. So then Chambliss starts looking at it, and he discovered something kind of surprising. Investigators had eventually, uh, um, had a, did a DNA testing on one of the envelopes. Oh, yeah. Duh. Why wouldn't they do that? Well, they did. And he said they determined that it belonged to a woman. Ooh. So they decided to look a little closer at Abby Langford, which was the girl that lives over at the house, one of the sisters. And nothing really there, but see, she was a real estate agent. So it would make sense maybe that she was mad that she didn't get a commission on a house that was right next door to her. Mm-hmm. And a million dollar house, that's a hell of a commission. Yeah. So, but they kind of ruled out all the Langfords as suspects. So none of that worked out. She did do a DNA test and it didn't match. Oh. Yeah, so they did do that. So the Broadduses, they were, like, completely stunned. They had recently told prosecutors that they planned to file civil charges against the Langfords and wondered that the prosecutors were lying to prevent the story from blowing up again. He said, my family, uh, this is coming from uh, the Langfords, my family moved on the boulevard in 1961, and we never caused a problem for anybody. This guy gets all these letters, and all of a sudden, people are pointing fingers. So now they don't have a suspect. 
So the Broadduses, they reopened their own personal investigation. They uh, still didn't want to share a lot of information with neighbors because they were all still part of the pool of suspect, but they spent an afternoon walking the block with a picture of the, of the, uh, the letters or the, or the envelope and just kind of hoping somebody might recognize it from a Christmas card or something. Mm-hmm. It's the same type of writing. The only notable encounter they actually came up with was an older man who lived behind 657 and said his son joked that the watcher sounded a little bit like him. And then they were across the street, who was the CEO of Kroll, which is a big security firm. The Broadus has hired that company to look for handwriting matches, but they found nothing. And then they hired Robert Leonard, who was a renowned forensic linguist, and he was a former member of the band Sha Na Na. Hmm. that was cool. Yeah. I wonder which one he was. He wouldn't Bowser. He didn't find anything noteworthy at all to overlap, like on social uh, media and stuff like that. He was reading in forums and stuff, anything. Nothing. So we really have nothing. <laughs> they, they uh, at one point, they were trying to get them to break into Wi-Fi networks in the neighborhood to kind of look for incriminating documents and um, to see if anybody had said anything. Or mm-hmm. it turns out that that's illegal. <laughs> Would go figure. And plus, it's a little harder to do than what they make it look in the movies. That's what they <laughs> so they're back to square one. Nothing. The cops ask Andrea Woods, which was the lady who sold them the house, for a DNA sample, and they interviewed her 21-year-old son, who was surprised to find that he suddenly now seemed to be a suspect. And they said a year after the fact that it was hard to find fresh leads, and the initial police canvas had been so porous that it had missed a significant clue. Around the same time that the Broadduses had received the first letter, another family on the boulevard got a similar note from the watcher. The parents of that family lived in their house for years, and the kids were grown, so they threw the letter away just as the Woods had. But after the news broke, one of the children posted about it on Facebook, then deleted the post. But investigators saw it. They spoke to the family, and they confirmed that the letter had actually been similar to the Broadduses, but its existence only made the case more confusing because there wasn't a whole lot to go on. That's messed up. So one night, it's a Chambliss guy. He's sitting there, and they're in a van. Just kind of parked, and they're watching the house. About 11 o'clock, this car pulls up, and it sat there long enough to where they were suspicious. So they go over and see what's going on. It's this young woman. She lives in a nearby town, but she said her boyfriend lives right there in the same block at 657. She said her boyfriend was into some really dark video games, including one in which he was playing a specific character, the Watcher. As for the female DNA, it could have been maybe her DNA, you mm-hmm. know, the girlfriend or, of, the, of the guy. He was supposed to show up for two different interviews. Voluntarily, they didn't have anything to book him on, so it was just it had to be voluntarily, but he didn't show up for either one. Hmm. So the Broadduses continued to con- be consumed by all this stress and fear, they decided that this was not an urban legend. This was something that was really happening. And the people in the neighborhood, they didn't want to believe it. They just wanted to keep living their little Mayberry-type lives. And so they didn't want it to come out. That's just the way that it was. So here's what they were going to have to do. They are going to have to listen to all the rumors that were being said. Like, people were saying, hey, here's the deal. Uh, I don't think you got letters. Maybe you just wrote the damn letters yourself. Why? Hmm. Well, they thought 
maybe they bought the house and then have buyer's remorse and realize that they couldn't afford the home. Yeah. That was the only way maybe they could try to get this elaborate scheme to get out of the sale. Or maybe Derek was working on insurance fraud because he worked for an insurance company somehow, some way. Or they were angling for a movie deal. Just like the Amityville Horror or something like it. Maybe they're, oh. they're putting all this out there hoping somebody make a movie and then get rich off of it. That doesn't really hold water, though, because they received several offers but turned them all down. Uh, Lifetime actually did a movie called The Watcher. And they tried to get that movie stopped. They sent a cease and desist letter. But they said, it's not the same family. The couple in our movie is biracial. And the guy signs the letters, The Raven. Even though the movie was called The Watcher. (laughs) (laughs) And it was basically the same thing. They were able to air this movie. Then you had people saying, well, I think it's awful funny that they went from a $315,000 house to a $770,000 to a $1.3 million um, all within a year. I mean, all within 10 years. And when they asked him about, you know, Derek, about, well, how does this happen? He's like, uh, because it's America. You know, you can work your way up and make more money and get newer, nicer things. And it's just the way that it is. They also tested Maria's DNA which is the wife, and hers was no match either. So much for that. So none of the theories made any sense at all whatsoever. So how does someone go from 300 to 1.3 million? Like we said, you could just work your way up the ladder and do that. So here's what another person said. They thought it was an elaborate scheme to defraud the woods out of millions of dollars. They thought by them saying, okay, all this happened, and you didn't tell me, maybe they wrote the letter, that the Woods got, mm-hmm. and then just continued it on after they went. Apparently, the Woods were um, both retired scientists and worth a lot of money. So, you know, I don't know. But that kind of stuff's going on. So they decided, you know, we're not, we're not just going to take a huge loss. So they had somebody come to them and said, well, what if, what if we sold the land to a developer had them tear the house down and then put two houses on the property because they had one of the bigger lots. Mm-hmm. The problem is it had to be like, I can't remember what it was, 700 feet wide, and it was like literally three feet short if they cut it in half. Oh, dang. So they go in and they have this, um, what do you call it, like the the, the board of trustees mm-hmm. of the neighborhood, neighborhood commission and stuff. They get all these people together and... They say, hey, we're going to put it to a vote. And they pretty much was shot down. Can't do it. They brought attorneys in and everything else to fight to be able to sell this to a developer, at least get their money. And they're like, no, we have a prestigious neighborhood. That's That house has been there. We're not going to tear it down and put two houses up that don't fit the scheme of the neighborhood. You'd have to have front-facing garages on both of them. And that's not the way the other ones are. And it would just ruin the neighborhood as far as we're concerned. So they decided, well... We'll fight fire with fire. We can do one of two things. If you're not going to let us tear it down, then we'll sell it to a halfway house. And you can just have halfway houses rented there. We won't sell it. We'll just use it as a halfway house. In the end, they just ended up renting it to somebody. And he stayed there for a while. And guess what happened? He got letters? He got a letter. So the family that moved in, they had grown children, two big dogs, Everything looked like that was the perfect fit there. He wasn't worried about the watcher. He had a, did have a clause in his lease, though, that said in case of another letter, he could get out of it. So two weeks later, Derek went to check out 
you know, what was going on with the house and everything. He had some squirrels that had, I guess, started got up in the roof, and mm-hmm. he was going to go over and take care of all of it. And when he was there, the renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived. <laughs> oh, man. It said, violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. This letter, two and a half years after the watcher appeared. So now we're two and a half years into this thing. Okay, so then... And they still had never moved in. They've got renters in there now. Okay. But they've been through the whole planning, zoning, uh, meetings and stuff where everything was denied. And now they got renter in there. Did they tell the renter then? The renter already knew. Okay. He knew ahead of time. So it was dated February 13th, the day the Broadduses gave their deposition in the lawsuits against the Woods. Said, so you wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who had no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know, and you're too scared to tell anybody. Good move. The thing about this letter, though, it was a little less stylish. And a little more hateful than the other ones. And it seemed like the writer, if it was the same person, had really been following the case closely. So they had seen the media coverage because it said, it said in the letter that he, he walked by the news trucks when they took over the, my neighborhood and mocked me. Stuff like that. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. And the whole attempt to tear down the house. It said, 657 Boulevard survived your attempt assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657. Mm. All hail the Watcher. The renter was actually even mentioned into the, the thing, but... He said he was spooked, but he agreed to stay at the Broadduses and installed cameras around the house. And the letter indicated that revenge could come in many different forms. Maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day, after day, after day, after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. Derek and Maria said it was just like they were right back at the beginning. But they had some fresh evidence. Maybe they'd give it to the police and they could find something. And they kind of started circling like a, a, they took one of those maps and they traced like a circle 300 yards in in, uh, diameter. And they said, he's got to be somewhere in this area, Mm -hmm. right here in this area. And then they even drew one, Derek drew one like much closer. And he said, in my view, it's one of the 10 houses right around here. So they continued to push, but really wasn't much law enforcement could go on. So wasn't a whole lot that could be done. Residents mentioned uh, a teenager whose father had grown up around the corner and a man who sometimes walked around the neighborhood playing a flute. <laughs> An elderly couple behind the house had been there 47 years. Oh, that husband, by the way, was the same one that was sitting in the lawn chair that was <laughs> uh, staring at him. But that's kind of where it's at. I mean... They've never moved in. They still own the place. They still think that this guy could kind of watch them at any point in time. That is creepy, man. That is so creepy. So here's the deal. Initially, it sounds like this house is being stalked by like some kind of creepy person that's obsessed or, 
either with, with somebody who lives over the house, because he's always pointing out all these different things that are very specific. But what if the watcher isn't human at all? What if these letters were sent to the residents by some type of paranormal entity? Because the watcher often referred to himself in the address of the house itself. Yeah. If you remember, mm-hmm. he mentions that address a lot. He spoke of a second coming of the house as if it was alive. And he even warned, you don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. So he also speaks as if he is in the walls or running from room to room. Or maybe it's just a ghost that lives in the house even now. What do you think? I think that I would have just took less money from my house. <laughs> and they did say at one point in time they would have probably been better off to just taking the financial hit and just got rid of it. I mean, why beginning. wouldn't they? Why would you make yourself have to go through that all these years? I mean, I guess the guy's paying rent, but still. The rent doesn't cover the amount of rent they were getting didn't cover the mortgage. They were still losing money even on that day. Yeah, so I would just let it go. Now, talking about this ghost thing, it's been suggested that the watcher may be the spirit of a local murderer named John List or a previous owner who had died and come back to haunt the place. However, the watcher is able to send tangible letters, so whoever, whatever they are, are likely tangible as well. So it's probably Mm -hmm. not a ghost. That's messed up. Yeah, I done moved far away from that place. You definitely got somebody who's obsessed with kids. Yeah. All that talk about right. kids and stuff, mm-hmm. so who knows? Yeah. that And that's crazy that that is a real thing. That really happened to these people. Oh, and there was one final letter. It said, you are despised by the house. And the watcher won. How about that for an ending? I don't even know. <laughs> so I wonder, I mean, I don't know. It's just bizarre because, you know, he said his dad did it before him. His grandfather did it before him. So what happens to him? I don't know. What but, happens after that? But nobody, I mean, nobody remembered anything except for those couple of letters right there at the end. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a strange twist. On Christmas Eve of 2016, I think it was, there was a bunch of neighbors, mainly the ones like at the planning committee, mm-hmm. that were basically telling, you know, that were against them and the planning and zoning committees and all that. All these people started getting letters, and it, these letters were basically saying, you're wrong, uh, you know, you've accused people, how does it feel, you know, all this stuff. Well, it turns out, you know, and it said a friend of their family was what it showed up as on, on a friend of the Broadduses is how it was signed. Well, come to find out, Derek admitted that he actually wrote all those letters and handed them out. It was on Christmas Eve. What? And it, yeah, and hand-delivered them through the neighborhood. Not the ones before, but just right. this little group of letters. So he did admit to writing these letters and handing them out. Just cause he said he just got tired of being accused of stuff and not being able to answer back. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that's not going to help his case any because now people are like, well, why, well if you wrote these letters. Yeah, you, you say, probably wrote the other, yeah. So Yeah, it was a dumb move. So, anyways. part. Pretty cool story, I thought. Freaky, yep. and they have no clue who wrote the letters. If they were written, nobody has a clue who did them. Nobody, I, nobody still knows. No. Nope. 
So be careful what you ask for when you ask for your dream house. Right. Could be a nightmare house. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. Yeah, I did. It's pretty good, babe. Love you guys. Love y'all. Guys, thank you so much for listening this week. We'll be back next week with an all brand new show. So thank you so much for bearing with us while we go on vacation and uh, spend all this extra time. It's been tough finding a time to be able to do this because with me changing the position at work, I've had to spend a lot of time training people to do stuff that I normally do. So it's taken away the time. So thanks for bearing with us. Yeah, thank you guys so much. We love y'all and hope y'all have a blessed week. Are you sick of everybody being so sensitive these days? No matter what you say, everyone gets offended. Then we've got the podcast for you. I'm Jerry. I'm Amanda. And we're the hosts of Warning You Will Be Offended. A podcast with no filter. If you're offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We can't even talk about most of the topics on this promo. You won't want to miss Amanda's Fact of the Week. Ooh, can I tell them about torso porn? Absolutely not. Can I tell them what color whale poop is? No. So subscribe today to Warning You Will Be Offended. It's pink! Damn it!